There we go. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 10 to 18 again. Um, we're going to be in this passage. You'll have a few different voices over the next couple of weeks just to, to get a break and get, get something different. And we'll, we'll finish off with another couple of messages in Ephesians in June. But this is so important. This is so, so important. Please do not let familiarity with a passage of Scripture cause you to push it to one side or think I've heard this before. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Anybody need that? I do. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Yes, amen. Previously in Ephesus, we saw that the first three chapters are about sitting and then we are walking and then we are standing. And the standing section at the end of Ephesians is about spiritual warfare. That we have an enemy who is real, who is powerful, who is largely unseen, who hates us and who wants to wreck everything that God is doing in our lives, in our communities, in our churches. He wants to wreck it. He is fully focused on destroying us as we focus on walking with God. And we are told twice at the start of this passage that the reason for putting this armor on is that we'd be able to stand our ground. That we would not slip, slide, fall, make mistakes, but we could stand our ground. And last week, we looked at the belt of truth. We only got as far as as getting one piece of armor done. This week, we're going to look at two. And that is the breastplate of righteousness and the boots of the gospel. Um, Two more pieces of armor. If you read the King James Version, you sometimes get strange phrases like Psalm or Proverbs 23, verse 16. Yea, my reins shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. My reins. What is your reins? Is that like on a horse or a reindeer where you're sort of, you know, got these leather straps and you're whipping and banging out? So that's not what it means. The reins means the kidneys. Okay. <laughs> And you'll you'll see then that in more recent versions of the scriptures, it's translated, my inmost being will rejoice. You've heard the word renal, that's to do with the kidneys. And 
There's another example in Psalm 26. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind is a more modern way to put that. You will read also verses in scriptures about the bowels as well. The ancient people saw our internal organs almost as the seat of our emotions, our will, our desires, our emotions, our feelings. They associated that with our internal our organs. We would now largely talk about the heart. Right? We would say, you know, this, we've got this in our hearts or, or there's something against my heart. We wouldn't talk about the kidneys just as much, but they did. So when you read that sort of, those sort of passages, that's what they mean. They're not talking about their physical kidneys. They're talking about their inmost being, who they are inside. The kidneys, the heart, whatever it is. And the writer to the Proverbs knew the importance of guarding the heart that that is where attacks would come. That's where we would be assailed. And he said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So it's pretty obvious that if we want to guard the heart, then we need a breastplate. That's why Paul uses this image in the armor of God. The breastplate is to protect our inmost being. Last week, we put on the belt of truth. That holds everything together. That allows us to tuck up those flowing robes that the, the early the Romans would have worn and be ready for movement, ready for action. This is the breastplate, which would have covered us front and back. Didn't leave your back exposed. There would have been a, like a bronze plate on the front and on the back. And it guarded and protected your internal organs. You could get away with a blow to the arm or a blow to the legs, but a blow to the chest region and things were, were looking rough. So we need to have something that guards our hearts. Do you know what it's like to have your heart damaged? <laughs> Anybody experienced that? If you've been breathing for any length of time, you probably have experienced damage to your heart. Nothing to do with your physical muscle that's just banging away in there all the time, but who you are, your inmost being, your feelings. You've experienced that being hurt. All of us have. And if we're being honest, all of us have probably caused others to feel that hurt as well at some stage in our lives. But our hearts can get damaged. They can get damaged by negative things that have been spoken over us and done to us. They can be damaged when we are betrayed, when we are abused, and our hearts are vulnerable, and we desperately need something to protect our hearts. This is a spiritual battle. And I want you, as we go through this now in, in a few weeks' time, I want you to keep on holding it in your mind. This is about a spiritual battle, and this is about how we stand. And God has given us this breastplate of righteousness to help us stand. And like last week with the belt of truth, this is not just some sort of loosely Christian thing. Oh, here's something that these people can put on or think about a wee illustration they can use. This is God's own armor. In Isaiah 59, we read about him himself putting on righteousness as his breastplate. So he gives us the very armor that he wears himself in order to protect us. And as a community, the way we protect our hearts is with righteousness. 
And similar to last week again, where we talked about truth and we saw how truth had come up in the Ephesians journey so far, the same thing happens with righteousness. In chapter 4 and verse 24, we are told to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness. There is a putting off of an old way of living. And there is a putting on of a new way of living. Symbolized in baptism as well. Putting to death the old. Death. Death to the old. And then putting on the new in righteousness. And again in Ephesians 5, we're told that when we live as children of light, the fruit of that will be goodness, righteousness and truth. So it's something that has featured already in the letter. And as with last week, again, there are two ways that we can understand this. And I'm going to say it's both of them. Is this the righteousness that we have received from God? Or is this the righteousness that we live out? I think it's both. I'm going to briefly address the first one and then linger a little bit longer on the second one. What is righteousness anyway? (laughs) It's one of those Bible words, isn't it? One of those church words. It's a right standing with God. It is a right way to live that honors God and pleases God. It's a word that probably has some slightly religious baggage to it, but it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to receive righteousness from God and then to live righteous lives is a beautiful thing. You may have studied the names of God at some stage on your journey. And in the Old Testament, one of the names of God in Hebrew is Yahweh Sidkenu. And it means the Lord our righteousness. It's in Jeremiah 23. The Lord our righteousness. And in 1 Corinthians 1, we read of Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, or wisdom from God, that is our righteousness. And again, in Romans 5, 1, we have been justified through faith. The word justified literally means made right or made righteous. Now, whenever we walk with God, whenever we are born again, we are given righteousness from God. He makes us righteous because of what Jesus did. We don't make ourselves righteous. We don't clean ourselves up. We don't earn favor with him in advance and have to do several things and jump through several hoops in order to come to him. We come to him as we are in repentance and in faith and he gives us his righteousness. It's like the prodigal, whenever the prodigal runs home and the father meets him and gets a robe and puts the robe on him, that's like what God does to us. When we run to Father God, he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he puts that onto you so that when he looks at you, he sees righteousness. He doesn't see sin. When you look at yourself and you see sin, you need to not reflect on that. You need to not look at your past and think about all the things you did. You need to realize that if you are born again, only if you're born again, and you have come to him in faith, when he looks at you, he doesn't see all your mistakes. He sees righteousness. And whenever we linger long on our pasts and on the mistakes that we have made, we are allowing the enemy to actually get a foothold in our lives. 
God has made us righteous. And one of the things, one of the ways that that protects our hearts is because the devil is an accuser. He is a slanderer and he continually will try to get you to think that God does not love you that you're not good enough, that you're not right with God, that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough for you. It'll save the people beside you and behind you, but it won't save you. And he continually throws these lies into our hearts and condemns us. We need protection. It's a spiritual battle. And, And Paul says that we're given this breastplate of righteousness and he writes this wonderful verse in Romans 8. And this is a belter of a verse. Romans is a difficult old book sometimes to chomp through. And chapter 7, I remember preaching on chapter 7 and 8 of Romans last June, but chapter 7 is a, is a chapter that I believe describes the life before Christ, before Jesus. And you're left at the end of chapter 7 feeling pretty hopeless and then chapter 8 kicks in and talks about life in the Spirit and says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, that's the breastplate of righteousness. You put that on and you know that you are not condemned. God does not condemn you. That's truth and that protects you from the lies of the enemy trying to condemn you. You are not condemned. There is no condemnation. If in your life as a believer you feel condemnation, that is not from God. If you're born again, and you still feel condemnation, that is not from God. If that's something you battle with, let's pray with you afterwards and let's actually address that because it's not from God. He has given you righteousness to protect you against the condemnation of the enemy. Romans 8 also finishes with this question, who is it that condemns us? Just sort of almost throws out the challenge. Is there anybody out there that can actually bring condemnation against the child of God? And then Paul answers his own question and says, no, there's not. They may try. People may throw things at you. The devil throws things at you. But ultimately, no one can bring condemnation against you or me that can stick because we're wearing the breastplate of righteousness, God's righteousness. So this is about, this breastplate is about the righteousness that he gives to us when we come to him in faith and in repentance. But it's also about righteous living. These verses that have come up already in Ephesians that were created to be like God in true righteousness and the fruit of our lives should be righteous living. This breastplate of righteousness is us as a people together and as individuals living righteous lives. That's not legalistic rule keeping. It's living righteous lives that please God. And if we do not determine in our hearts to live righteously, we are unprotected in the battle and the enemy will be able to strike us down. Remember what was said last week. It's to put on the full armor of God. And if we choose to be really sloppy about righteousness and really tolerant of sin and things that we know do not honor God, we are unprotected and we will fall on the battlefield. 
This is so important. So important. Joseph, when he, whenever he was living in Potiphar's house, after his family had, or his brothers had sold him into slavery, and he's living in Potiphar's house, and he's starting to rise to, to, to a bit of favor with Potiphar, when his wife takes a fancy to Joseph, and she tries to seduce Joseph, and he runs. But the thing that he says is, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Don't just think that when we do things wrong that we are damaging another person. Yes, we are. That we are damaging ourselves in the same process. Yes, we are. But we are sinning against God. Joseph realized that. David realized that in Psalm 51 after his adultery with Bathsheba. He said, against you only have I sinned. He, the, the, the weight of this was heavy on God's people. And if we deliberately sin and habitually sin, I'm not talking about perfection because we cannot reach perfection in this life. But if we tolerate sin and we habitually sin, we give the enemy a foothold. Again, that's come up in Ephesians 4. It's almost as if he's just continually walking around the walls of the church. This is a community passage. This is written to a group of people together. So it doesn't just apply to you as an individual. It does, but it applies to the church as a whole. And it's almost as if he's just walking around the walls looking for a crack. Picture came into my mind there as we were, as we were singing from The Hobbit. And in The Hobbit, there's a big old ugly dragon and the only way to kill the dragon is there's a particular black arrow and there's only one of them left and that black arrow has to hit the dragon at a particular place where there's just a slight weakness in its armor and in the context of that story you want the dragon to be hit and you want the dragon to die but if we've reversed that the devil has got arrows pointed at us and he's looking for chinks in the armor and if, if the breastplate of righteousness, if I am habitually, knowingly, intentionally living unrighteously, there are cracks that appear. And you better believe he is standing there with the arrow drawn and the bow ready to bang, let her go. And if I give him a chance, if I give him a crack in the breastplate, if I, if I am habitually sinning without repentance, without confession, without actually in the power of the Holy Spirit trying to put sin to death... He will get that arrow in there. He will. And that won't just affect me. That will affect the whole body of Christ. Deliberate sin causes a crack in the armor. How do you cover over the cracks? How do you cover over the cracks? John, John writes in, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, I think it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Breastplate complete. That's grace. That's grace. Don't condemn yourself thinking that we're trying to live a perfect life. We're not. We're trying to live righteously and please God. And whenever we get it wrong, the instinctive and instant response is confession. Forgive me, Lord. 
cover over that crack. Confession not only to God but to one another. This is where trust again in the body of Christ is so vital and so precious that we can actually confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be strengthened, that the breastplate may be complete. No cracks where the enemy can get an arrow through. You see, the heart is the problem. Underneath this breastplate, we've got a heart that Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, before Jesus, before the power of the Holy Spirit came to transform the human heart, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Now, you get that verse kicked about a lot in the church. I don't believe that verse applies to the Christian. That verse applies to the person outside of Christ. The Christian's been given a new heart, according to Ezekiel. A new heart. The old heart has been taken away, the heart of stone. The idolatrous heart that ran after other things and worshipped itself. That's been taken away and replaced with a new heart, a heart of flesh. And God does not give us a wicked heart. But Jeremiah identifies the problem in humanity is a heart that is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And we've got to have a breastplate on to protect our hearts. What is your attitude to sin, church? What's your attitude to sin? There's a big difference between waking up and saying, I don't plan to sin today. And waking up saying, I plan to not sin today. You might think I've just said the same thing twice and I haven't. It's not just about blundering through life and thinking, well, I'm not planning to sin. I'm not planning to do anything today that would grieve God. It's another thing to very intentionally plan to not do it. Proactive. I don't want to sin today. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit today. I proactively make an intentional decision. I don't want to do that. I'm not just going to blunder through the day and hope for the best. I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. I don't want to grieve him. Church, I love him. Do you love him? Is your battle against sin born out of love for King Jesus? Or is it born out of some legalistic notion that you're not allowed to do that because Christians don't do that? It makes the battle so much easier when you're fighting from a place of love. I don't want to grieve him because I love him. He is my king and he is my God. And and it's not just about not wanting to do something wrong. I don't want to grieve the one I love. I don't want to grieve the one I love. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? To be right with God, to live in a way that honors God. Is that something you yearn for? Because I tell you folks, if you really believe that we're made in the image of God, then the most beautiful way to live is to yearn after his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's where you will feel most alive. Any other life, you will not be fully alive as God designed you to be. Seek his righteousness, hunger and thirst for it. You cannot protect yourself from temptation without righteousness. 
So it's both. It's both the righteousness that God gives us when we come to him, and it's also the righteousness that we live out. And I want you to be careful to remember the context. Put on the whole armor of God. If you're thinking right now of little things, of the Holy Spirit's bringing stuff to your mind, just little things that you tolerate, that you know grieve God, stop tolerating them. In the power of the Holy Spirit, put them to death and put them out of your lives and start living righteously or you will not stand. He only needs a crack, just a crack, and he's in. He's in. We've got to put on the whole armor. And again, don't forget that this is a community project. David Watson said, personal sin is not a private matter. My sin can make the whole church vulnerable to the devil's attack. The whole of Israel suffered through the sin of Achan. There's a guy in Joshua chapter 7. And the entire life of a local church can likewise suffer from unconfessed sin, which is festering somewhere within the congregation. Boy, that's potent stuff. I'm glad, I'm glad that was a quote. That's potent stuff. But do you believe that? The armor is a community project. And if I secretly nurture some hidden sin, there's collateral damage throughout the body. I mentioned it last week. I'm going to keep saying the same thing over again. I don't care if you hit me saying the same thing over again. I'm going to keep doing it because then you'll remember it. You've got to watch each other's backs. You need to watch my back. I need to watch your back. You need to watch each other's back. There's got to be that constant looking out for each other. Can you imagine what it would be like an army on the battlefield and, and, and someone is, is by your side and they, and they receive a, a minor wound or they stumble over a stone and you just say, ah, well, whatever, depart with you. I'm running on. It would never happen. We need to be grabbing each other, picking each other up, dusting each other off, encouraging one another to put this armor on. So we are to stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And then the second one for today, which won't be as long as the the gospel boots. Stand firm with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You need the right boots for the job. Christina walked up the hills a few weeks ago and then a day or two later bought a pair of boots. (laughs) Yeah? For, for going back again. and Adam started work recently there and needed a pair of boots with, with steel toes in them. You need the right boots for the job. There's no point turning up on a building site with a pair of flip-flops on. Okay? You need the right boots for the job. And The Roman soldier wore boots called caligas that had hobnails in the soles of them. And in fact, a a historian called Josephus said that one of the secrets of the success of the Roman army was their shoes. These guys could march between 25 and 50 miles a day. Whereas other armies that were less well kitted out in terms of their feet could not walk those distances. The studs in the bottom of the boots allowed you to stand firm so you didn't slip. You could get a grip. If you were climbing, you had a grip. You weren't slipping around all over the place. Good boots are essential. And when we have put on the preparation of the gospel of peace, going to look at what that means, we will be able to stand. It's all about standing. These boots are not for launching karate kicks at the devil. All right? 
These boots are for standing. Standing firm. If you, ha- if you imagine a rugby scrum and one team have got their, their boots on with studs and the other team are in their bare feet, just be comical. It wouldn't matter how big they are, they're just going to be pushed sliding around all over the place. These boots allow us to stand. When the pressure's on, we don't get pushed backwards. We don't slip, we don't slide, we stand. And again, there are two possible meanings. There's the, the, it could mean that the gospel prepares us for the Christian walk. A lot of people say the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I would say it's not even a marathon. Biblically, it's a walk. It's a long walk. You pace yourself for the walk. There's a fabulous book about discipleship by a fabulous man who passed away about a year ago, Eugene Peterson. And the book is called, it's a mouthful, the title, but it's brilliant, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's about just focusing your eyes on Jesus and walking and keep on walking and keep on walking. Don't break into a sprint or you'll get tired. We went up the hills at Easter that day. Um, We had an enthusiastic eight-year-old who just can't really walk anywhere. Um, I think if he had had a a step counter or or something on him, he actually did twice the steps everyone else did because he runs forward and then he comes back to you and then he runs forward and comes back to you. And I was just saying to him over and over again, son, don't run, just walk. It's going to be a long day. You just, just, just walk. And this Christian life is about just walking. You try to run, you wear yourself out. Some people, they try to run early in their Christian lives and they end up worn out. Maybe the church makes them run. Maybe the church tries to drive them too hard and are worn out. This is about a long, steady walk. So the gospel prepares us for that Christian walk. And also we are to be prepared to bring the gospel. Prepared to bring the gospel. I want to try to just correct, I believe, some of our thinking about what it means to witness, to bring the gospel to people. Um, we've got three things in this. We've got preparation, readiness. If we're going to stand in the spiritual warfare that we are facing, there must be a sense of readiness in us at all times. Preparation. Frequently in our house, I will say to the children, are you ready? just trying to get out of the house and get everybody into the car at once uh, I say are you ready and yeah yeah we're ready okay and five minutes later right let's go I haven't got my shoes on there's something about the shoes they, they, they see themselves as being ready even when they don't have shoes on <laughs> everything else is on and everything else is done but for some reason the shoes have not gone on and therefore they are not ready you understand they can't go out they get to the front door and they look at all the sharp stones in the driveway and that's it There's a readiness about having our shoes on. We're prepared. I spend most of my life at home in my bare feet. I just don't like wearing shoes about the house. (laughs) And uh, the flip side of what I just said about the kids being ready, if they're wearing shoes in the house when they don't need to be wearing, I'm frequently saying, would you take those off? Because you're clamping about in them and it makes it, to me it looks like you're going somewhere. We're not going anywhere. Take them off. But there's a readiness about having shoes on. I hate it when somebody comes to the door and I'm, you know, about the house in my, in my bare feet and I can't find a pair of shoes to go out the door or whatever. 
There's a readiness about having your shoes on. And if you don't have them on, you're, you're, you're a bit stuck. Preparation is what this speaks of. Are we prepared to share the gospel with people? Again, we'll develop that in a minute. And also it, it, it speaks of peace. It's ironic, isn't it? We're talking about warfare. And in order to do warfare, we need to be prepared with a gospel of peace. In, in Ephesians 2, we read about Jesus in verse 14. He is our peace. And we read about how he has brought people together. People who were previously at conflict brought together in peace. And how he preaches peace. One of the things that the gospel brings to our lives is peace. And peace doesn't mean quietness. It doesn't, it doesn't mean sitting in the armchair in your own with a cup of tea and, and relax. Not that sort of peace. It brings peace to our relationships with one another. I thank God that there is peace in this room. Peace. It brings peace to our relationship with God. We're reconciled with him and we are at peace with him. It is well with my soul class being able to sing that and mean it <laughs> i'm at peace with god so this gospel brings peace and we sang this morning um i don't know if we've sang the verse of that song before we've sang the chorus of it but the verse peace bringing it all to peace the storm surrounding me let it break at your name that was class i've had two dreams in, in recent months where a tidal wave a tsunami has been coming towards me one, I was standing on the beach with the family and we had a house on the beach and this, this tsunami was coming in. And one, I was in the water swimming and the tsunami was, was following me as I was trying to get away from it. And on both occasions in the dream, there was a sudden bang and the wave just fell. Peace, bringing it all to peace. The storm surrounding me, let it break at your name. Peace. And then there's the gospel. So our feet, we've got the preparation or the readiness of the gospel of peace. You do warfare by stepping out with the gospel. Now, what does this mean? First of all, again, back to Isaiah, which Paul obviously liked and was reading at the time that he wrote Ephesians, I reckon. Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those. Think about what we're talking about. The armor of God and these, these are, are feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. So the picture is of a runner, probably running from the battlefield back to the town to bring good news of victory on the battlefield. And it's saying, how beautiful are the feet of people who come bearing good news. Beautiful feet. Hard to imagine, isn't it? <laughs> How beautiful are the feet of someone who brings good news. And we might express that differently. If someone comes to the door and brings us good news, if someone comes and blesses us, we're overjoyed at their arrival and we're overjoyed at what they've brought. This is just saying the same thing. The, the feet of the one who has come and brought me this news are beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. And... Question I, I want to put to you is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And are we able to share the gospel? 
I used to just get really panicked about this and really freaked out about it. And I thought I have to have some sort of like 10 step process to, to talk people through if I'm actually going to share the gospel with them. And if I get it in the wrong order, they'll be eternally lost. Um, witnessing meant some awful, awkward conversation where you're just, you know, you're just chatting away with someone, you're getting on really well, and then all of, a, all of a sudden you feel you have to tell them that they're a guilty, hell-deserving sinner. That, that's, you know, I, I just had this complex, I can't do this. This is so unnatural and so hard to actually build relationships with people and then somehow in the middle of it just drop this bomb and wreck it and watch them walk away. And I used to really fear it and I used to really think I'm, I'm useless at this. And, and, and now and again, it would be made even worse because a preacher would say, you know, how many people have you witnessed to this week, brother? Nobody. <laughs> and I just had this wrong idea in my mind of what the gospel was and what witnessing actually was. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Hmm? If you're asked to sum it up in a phrase, is the gospel... I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me, I'm going to heaven. That's all true, but that ain't the gospel. That ain't the gospel in its entirety. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. And if we just reduce it to that, we get a bunch of people, we convince them that they're sinners, we get them to pray a prayer, and then we leave them to it. Say, we'll see you in heaven in a few decades' time. And they'd have no clue what to do in between. They just bum around in church and never actually do anything. That's not the gospel. It is not the gospel. And the gospel as well, I want you to know, the gospel is good news. If you sit down with someone and share the gospel with them, and it comes across as bad news, there's something wrong. It's good news. And part of that may be the realization that we are sinners. Part of it will be the realization that we need to repent but overwhelmingly, there's good news. And here's what the good news is. And I want you to get this tattooed on your brain and on the backs of your eyelids. The gospel, according to Isaiah, we'll start with Isaiah and then we'll go to Jesus and then we'll go to Paul. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. Who proclaim peace who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, what is the message that this runner brings? This beautiful footed runner who's proclaiming good news, running flat out over the hilltops like David yesterday, just, just you know, bombing along the hills full of joy and vigor because the news is so good, not feeling the pain at all. In all seriousness, well done. Um, this guy had heart surgery a few years ago and yesterday went up Donard, so bless you, fair play to you. But what is the message that is brought by this runner? The message is, your God reigns. Now church, get this and get it well. The gospel is this, the kingdom of God has come. That's the good news. There is a stronger man. 
There is a king who rules and reigns in righteousness. There is a king who loves us so much that he came and he died for us and he rose from the dead for us. He is seated, enthroned in heavenly places and he brings us to sit with him in heavenly places. It's good news. The kingdom of God has come. And if we preach a gospel that is less than that, we're in dangerous ground. And we're selling people short and we're confusing them and we're inviting them into a life that they don't really then know what it means or what to do. The gospel is that God reigns. Jesus reigns. There is a king. That's why it was so important for Jesus to be from the line of David. It's not just some random little quirky ancestry thing. He's a king. That's why I love singing those songs that we sing uh, so much here. Just all of those songs. And listen as we sing them. King is all over the place. The church is learning again that Jesus is her king. Her king. Jesus came. Like, let's not preach a gospel that's different from the one Jesus preached. It would be a good idea to take his lead when we preach the gospel. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. He didn't say, here's the good news, I've come to die for you that you will go to heaven. Those things are true. But the gospel for him was, was all pulled down to this. The kingdom of God has come. God reigns. And just in case you think Paul preached anything different, he didn't. The book of Acts leaves Paul for two years under house arrest, proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. God reigns. And you know what? Whenever you are sharing the gospel with someone, it will become incredibly apparent very quickly whether or not God reigns in your heart and life. And it'll not be so much, well, I'm sharing 10 steps with you for you to come to faith. It'll just be, I love my king. Let me talk to you about my king. <laughs> Let me tell you about my king. I love him. He's amazing. He's incredible. I love him. I might not have all my theological I's dotted and T's crossed. And we might not be able to go through the order of things perfectly. But let me tell you about the king of my heart. The king of this world. The king of this universe. Tom Wright says the gospel is not a system of how people get saved. Get that out of your mind. It's not having your step-by-step process. Oh, I know the gospel. I memorized something that I read on the internet and I can use it whenever I'm chatting to someone. No, the gospel is not a system of how people get saved. The announcement of the gospel results in people getting saved. When we declare the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit then moves in hearts and people get born again. And when the kingdom of God comes, let me tell you, no other kingdom can stand. Hearts are exposed when the kingdom of God shows up. So that's the gospel that we need to put on. That's the gospel that we need to put on. King Jesus. King of my heart, king of my life. Let me talk to you about him. Because very quickly you will learn that he's real in my life. That he's not just something that I've memorized. Last week we finished with a a verse from Romans. 
clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just wanted you to see that again. We're told last week, put on the belt of truth. He is the truth, according to John 14. We're told this week to put on righteousness. He is our righteousness, according to 1 Corinthians 1. We're told to put on these boots of the gospel of peace. And we read in Ephesians 2 that he is our peace. The armor of God is Jesus himself, putting on Jesus, clothing ourselves with the King. Hallelujah. So stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Stand firm with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us everything we need for victory, for life, and for godliness. And I pray, Lord, that we will receive and we will put on the armor. I pray, God, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us for the battle. And Lord, we know in this church, we know, Father, how tight that battle is. We're aware of it. The kingdom of God has come and no other kingdom can stand, but it'll thrash about and do as much damage as it can. So I pray, Father, for strength for everyone, for righteousness protecting our hearts, for readiness and a knowledge of the gospel of the kingdom of God on our feet. And Lord, you will cause us to stand individually and corporately against the wiles and the schemes of the devil. We love you, Lord. We lift you up as our king. We praise you. And we ask that your kingdom will come more and more in our lives and in this town. In Jesus' name. Amen.